Lord, help us to quiet our hearts too, perhaps to give you things that need to be done or to confess sins that we're bringing with us this morning. Now, Lord, just so that our hearts are quiet and we're in your presence, we can hear your word, Lord. We can hear what your spirit might be whispering to us this morning. Lord, I know that your word is life and that your spirit is with us both to lead and to guide. Show us more of yourself as we look in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You don't have to raise your hands. I was curious if anyone took the uh, optional uh, assignment this week to write a sentence, a pregnant, meaningful opening sentence to the story of your life. If you did, uh, what did it say or what did it infer about where you've been or where you're at or where you're going? What, what kind of life did such an opening sentence describe? I thought about this and I'm not going to tell you what mine was, but good and bad, up and down. Um, and one of the things as I was thinking about that opening lines, which is what we looked at last week, but... You know, if you have come to know Christ, whatever your story has been in the past or whatever it is now, any of us who have come to know him, our story has been linked up with the only story that really counts in the end. So that our story, if it seems blasé even today, our future, because our story, we know how the book ends, you know, we know what Christ does and what the future looks like, that becomes your story and mine. If you're a Christian, his story becomes your story. So even if it doesn't look that great at times here on earth, we really are connected with the greatest story. And even if it's a little boring and some of our chapters are less than we want them to be now, the future is glorious. And C.S. Lewis, I love the phrase in his last book, I don't even remember the order, sorry. But anyway, it's further up and further in. See, that's what it's like for us. It's further up. Thank you, the last battle, Julie. (laughs) Further up and further in. That's our story. So uh, this was helpful for me, uh, doing a first line about where I'm at and what's reality look like for me. And if you didn't do it last week, you can do it this week. We're going to be back in John's Gospel this morning. Sometimes it's hard if, you know, if you've taught... It's hard to know how many verses to take at a time. We're going to be in verses 2 through 13 this morning. It's actually a pretty good chunk. Also, sometimes it's hard to know because on any given time, you like to take a theme and teach a theme so that there's coherence and cohesion. This actually is going to be a little choppy this morning. And uh, Stick with me, though. It's, it's all good, and, and we need to hear all of it. You remember last week in John's first verse, introducing his gospel, that it was laden with meaning, and we said both for Jews or Gentiles. You couldn't imagine a better opening line. You remember, for Jews, in the beginning, made them think back to Genesis 1. And John uses a word, the word for Jews was, was how God spoke the worlds into existence. Or for Greeks, the word was the concept of knowledge and ultimate reality. And it was the perfect opening line. John's going to continue this prologue, verses 1 through 18, or the official introduction to this book, continue his prologue, which we won't quite finish this morning. In verse 2, he says, he was in the beginning with God. Remember verse 1, he said, in the beginning was the Word. 
the Word was with God and the Word was God. Verse 2 follows up part of that again when he says, He was in the beginning with God. This goes back to Jesus being eternal. We talked about this a little bit last week, but you know one of the attributes of deity is eternality. And John is making it clear here again that when the beginning began, Jesus was there, eternal, co-eternal with the Father. And you remember we talked about heretical groups who changed the text of John 1.1 to get away from this very clear statement that Jesus is God. You know, even if you say to them, I'll give you that. Just say that John 1.1, the verb's not right, and I'll give you that. There's still no issue about Jesus' claim to deity. None at all. The rest of these verses, as well as John's gospel, and frankly throughout the New Testament, there's no problem about what his claim is. John 1.1 or not, there's no problem. Verse 2 says again, he was, he existed when time began in the beginning with the Father. He shares eternality with the Father. He's deity. Listen to the way Moses says this in Psalm 90. This is one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 90 verse 2, Moses says, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. John's applying that concept to Jesus. From everlasting past, Jesus, you are God. When time began, you were there with the Father. All things, John says at verse 3, came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Verses 1 and 2, Jesus is eternal. Verse 3, Jesus is Creator. Do we have any problem acknowledging that John is saying he's God? Jesus is God. Verse 3 again. All things came into being by him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Notice the two absolutes here. All things and nothing. If I say to my daughters at some time, what are you doing? And they say nothing. They don't really mean nothing. They mean something, just nothing worth mentioning. That's not the way John's using this here. In fact, in the Greek, it's more emphatic. Without him became not one thing. So you remember verse 1 tied back to Genesis 1.1? Well, here in verse 3, it's the same thing. It's more explicit now. Jesus created everything. If there's anything that has existence, it's because Jesus created it. So he's eternal with the Father, and he's the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He's the creator. Uh, that's John's point here, and we'll talk about why he's making this point in a minute on, a, on another verse, but I want to take a short tangent and, and uh, apply this verse. Without Jesus, John says, nothing, not one thing, came into being that has existence. Not one thing. Uh, evolution and creation has been a big deal in Kansas for the last several years because of the State Board of Education. Um, if you're a Christian, and there are many Christians who hold to what's called theistic evolution, and generally what this uh, says is, we believe what the scientists tell us that the earth evolved, that there's evidence for evolution. And so, what we do is we take Genesis 1.1, God created the heavens and the earth, and what we, the way we understand that, 
atheistically, evolutionarily speaking, is God created the mass of matter and he set time in motion. And then the process of creation for him was evolution. And through time and chance and the random processes of, and forces of nature, uh, the process of evolution created all that you see around us. And <clears throat> John was not writing about creation and evolution here in verse 3. <clears throat> but I'll tell you, I find it very, very difficult. I find it impossible to support theistic evolution with John 1 verse 3. This says that there's nothing that has existence, being, that Jesus personally did not create. If it has existence, if it has being, it's because he created it. This is just one more great reminder to me of the, I hope I say this without being offensive to anyone that would hear me, but the ludicrous claim that time and matter and chance produced anything. You know, when you drive through the mountains, as I did this last week, and you see just the glories around you, the the macro world, or I was looking up, you know, there's no so much less light. I was looking up and Cygnus, the constellation Cygnus, flies through the Milky Way galaxy on a clear night. I'll bet you can see that from the Langhoffers. This incredible glory on the large scale of the world you and I inhabit. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or Romans 1, that the creation itself testifies to God and his majesty on the big scale. We see that you've got to deny that to believe in evolution. Or when my daughters come home from Washburn and they talk about what they're learning in chemistry and anatomy and physiology, the wonders of the micro world, it's mind-boggling. Rachel will tell me something she's learning. And I, and I remind her, I say, you know all this happened by chance and time, don't you? <laughs> These incredible complexities. You know, when Darwin came up with evolution with this theory, we had no concept of the micro world. We didn't know what happened at cellular levels, for instance. But the more we learn, the more complex this world is. And so, getting back to John 1, 3, John says, if it's here, it's because Jesus created it. And we have got to display or entertain either incredible ignorance or a very, very willful, volitional denial of God and Jesus and his deity and his creative work to say that this place and these things and these elements came about by any process other than in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Beauty and order don't come from chaos. And I think even well-intended Christians insult God and their Savior when they're willing to buy in to these concepts that throw a bone to the scriptures and to the creator of the universe by saying, we'll give you evolution, but God started it all. It's an insult. The scriptures don't let you get away with this. No matter what some scientist tells you, the scriptures are true. You start there. And evolution has never been proven. You know, I, I hope you guys read enough and are in your Bible enough to know Evolution is the king's new clothes. There's, there's no evidence for evolution, none. It does not exist. It's the king's new clothes. 
And we have to shut our mind and shut our reason to say it's true or it has adherence or it, it conforms to reality to buy into it. It does not wash. And we leave rational thought behind to the degree that we buy in to that fairy tale and to that myth and to that creation story. It's, it's preposterous. So, if something has existence, John says, of Jesus, it's because Jesus created it. And the big, for John, getting back to the text and where he's leading us, to John, all he's saying, he's saying it simply but boldly, Jesus is the creator. He's eternal and he's the creator. Verse 4, in him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In Jesus, we've talked about this before, is life. Qualitatively is life. And Jesus, who is qualitatively life, has within his essence light. If you remove Jesus and his influence on the world, all you're left with is darkness and death. Take Jesus out of any equation, Jesus, the reflection of God, out of any equation, any, any form or view of life that you can think, you've removed the essence of life and you've removed all light. Think back to Genesis 1, 2 in the creation story. Verse 1, the worlds are spoken into existence. Matter is spoken into existence. But there's at least a formative follow-up creative process in the rest of Genesis 1 that follows that. Matter is formed in verse 1. But what's the first thing God does in the creative order of creation? The first thing he creates is light. The first thing he speaks as far as order into creation is light. And it's so much a part of the essence of who he is, it's the first thing he does. You know, sometimes if you're at home and it's dark night and the electricity is out or whatever, you know what it's like to stumble around in the dark. And all of a sudden, if you've taken light for granted before, now you don't. Because what does light do? It lets you see everything around you. It illuminates everything. It gives revelation and knowledge. That's what Jesus does. That's what he is in himself. He's revelation and knowledge. It's the first thing he creates in Genesis 1, and it's the essence of who he is here in John 4 and 5. He is life, but he's also light. So verse 5, the light, the essence of who and what he is, shines in the darkness. And you know what the darkness is? It's the world you and I inhabit. Not in this text, not in this case, physical darkness or physical light, but moral and spiritual darkness or moral and spiritual light. It says the darkness did not comprehend it. Comprehend in New American Standard. Some of your other versions may say did not overcome it. <clears throat> the word here is the same root that we'll look at later that means to receive. Whatever else this means, the light came into the dark world, the dark moral spiritual world, and that dark world did not receive the light. It may mean more than that, but it means at least that the world did not receive the light. It may mean more than that. It may mean the world, this darkness, couldn't overcome. It couldn't seize. One of the, the meanings of this word could mean seize or take. 
That's why we get received. But the world couldn't seize it so as to overcome it or squash it. Might mean that here too. Could include that. But at least it means that the dark world rejected did not receive the light. It's interesting. John's gospel doesn't say this, but later, uh, earlier in Matthew's gospel, three times when it talks about those people who are under the judgment of God, it says that they are cast into outer darkness. Outer darkness. Sometimes when we think of hell or future judgment, we think of the lake of fire or other images. But one of the images is, and one of the key images is, there's no light without Christ. And an eternity without Christ means eternal darkness, outer darkness, no light, no illumination, no way to see, so to speak, what's around you. I'll choose the light. This is a digression at verse 6, and this is a little choppy in this prologue. One commentator thinks these verses are here about John the Baptist because Later, in fact, in just in chapters 2 and 3, you know, John the Baptist is a key, key figure, and he's so important in Jesus' story. Some of his followers, though, weren't sure that he wasn't really the Messiah. You remember, they're confused, and later on, they're going to come to John, and they're going to say, that guy you pointed out, that guy that happens to be the Lamb of God, that guy you pointed out, he's baptizing And more people are going to him than to you. And there was within the Jewish audience, probably still at the time that John wrote, people who thought John the Baptist was the guy. And it's probably for some reason along that line that John John the Apostle introduces John the Baptist here in the prologue or the opening statement because he tells us why John was here. Verse 6, 7, and 8. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Sent there is the term we get apostle from. An apostle is one who's sent, commissioned. There came a man, an apostle, sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness. He was a martyr, a witness, that he might bear witness of the light, that all men might believe through him. He was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. John the Apostle seems to be saying right from the beginning to any of those Jewish Christians or Jewish folks who might become Christians, John was great, but he wasn't the true light. John was a witness to the real light. That was his purpose. In fact, verse 7, what was his purpose? That he might bear witness. And why did he bear witness? That all might believe through him. You remember John the Apostle's goal for anyone who read his gospel was that they might believe. And here he says, guys, John the Baptist came for the same reason I've written this gospel. He came as a witness to Christ so that you might believe. Same mission, same purpose. Verse 8, John was not the light. He wasn't it. He came to bear witness to the light. It's good to know your purpose It's good to know your purpose. And we should be, we're not lights of the world, by the way. We're lights in the world. We're for Christ. But we're like John the Baptist. We're not the deal. People don't need to come and know and love and serve us. But we need to be with John the Baptist. We'll talk more about this later in in chapters 1 and 2 especially. But 
we're supposed to share his mission of being witnesses, martyrs for Christ, so that others will believe. We point to Christ, not ourselves. You know, if you share the gospel, or if you're talking to someone who's not a Christian, and they're pointing to you or your deficient lifestyle, or they're pointing to other Christians and their deficient lifestyle, you can just, I would concede all that and say, you bet. Christians are some lousy people. Some real hypocrites are Christians, you bet. My life, I'm a wretch. If you got to know me, you'd think less of me than you do now. None of which is the point. But let me tell you about someone else who is the point. We're witnesses. We're not the light. We're not, don't, we'll never get it right. Jesus is the one we talk to, talk about, just as John the Baptist did. So he transitions at verse 9 back to his point. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. We take so much for granted in this life and in this world we live. If you were born blind, you could walk out into the full light of the sun and you would be walking in the light, wouldn't you? You could even feel the rays of the sun on your person, on your skin. You'd feel the heat. You'd be walking in the light that the sun provided, even if you were blind, physically. Walking in the light, even though you can't see it. Spiritually, people walk in the light of Christ Even though they're blind, they still derive a benefit from his revelation. He was the true light that enlightens, not just then, but now, every man. People walk in the light of Christ today, morally and spiritually. When a person who doesn't know Christ learns new things, they gain knowledge, they, they gain understanding, they're walking in the light of Christ, he who is ultimate truth or knowledge or reality. When they enjoy the things in life that God still gives us to enjoy, they're walking in the light that Christ provides. And again, go, go to the other end of the spectrum. Go to hell. What's hell like? See, that's the removal of God and life and light. So everyone who walks in this earth today, even though they're spiritually blind like a blind man feeling the warmth of the sun, Those who are spiritually blind still derive benefit from Christ, the light of the world. Because all knowledge, all true knowledge, all revelation, all goodness, all joy, that all comes as a reflection of the light of Christ that's still in the world today. Hell, when Christ removes the qualities of his life and light, and all that you have is what Christ isn't and doesn't have, That's when people will understand what it really means to be separated from Christ. See, here in this world, even though spiritually you might exist and not have life, you still derive benefit from Christ, the light of the world. The world still gets benefit from him and his revelation, his presence, both in his restraining sense as well as in his positive blessing. But he enlightens every man. It's a given. It occurs in this world. 10 through 13 are the crux of this passage. This is where John's going. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. John's told us if it has existence, he created it. He's creator. He was in the world. The creator came to his own world, the world he created, and the world did not know him, did not recognize him. 
did not receive him, did not acknowledge him. The creator of the world comes to his creation and is unrecognized. Not just, I didn't realize who you were, rejected. He came to the world he created and the world did not know him. His world rejected him. Verse 11, he came to his own, the Jewish nation, and those who were his own did not receive him. If you think you've been rejected, here's Christ, the creator of the world. He comes to his creation and is rejected. Worse than that, he comes to the Jewish people, the people that are called by his name. And just think about this for a second. He was the one who spoke to Abraham. He's the one who started the Jewish race. He's the one who said, look in the sky, count the stars if you can. He's the one who made the covenant and passed through the divided animals in Genesis. Jesus was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He was the manna in the wilderness. He was the rock and he was the water that flowed from the rock. He was the captain of the army of the host at, at, uh, with Joshua at Jericho. He caused the walls to fall down. Do you see it? He was the glory in the temple. He came to his own, to the Jewish nation that worshipped at the temple that was his house. He came to his own, his own family as it were, and they didn't receive him either. The world he created rejected him. The people he redeemed who called on his name rejected him. In fact, if you think about this, you know, he's rejected by the world, he's rejected by his own people. The ultimate rejection, which is where he's headed, of course, is on the cross, where he's rejected by his father. Different kind of rejection. But the point of both of these is that he suffered rejection and ultimate rejection so that you and I wouldn't have to. And this was a small, these were small compared to the ultimate rejection by his father on the cross. But this is John's point. Came to the world he created? Rejected. Came to the people he redeemed? Rejected. Hmm, where's this going? Verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is the point. He was rejected and he is rejected, commonly, pervasively. But as many as did receive him, he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. How? This is the same theme we mentioned earlier to those who believe in his name, to those who trust him. Rejected by the world, rejected by his own people, but received by some. How did they receive him? They believed in his name. They believed in him. You remember when we say believe in a name, it doesn't tend to carry the same weight or thought. The name is the person. The person is the name. In Old Testament or New Testament thinking, that's why it's important if someone names you or your name was important biblically, much more important than we think of today. One commentator wrote, Shakespeare, you know, a rose is a rose by any other name. We tend to minimize the importance of a name. Scripturally, the name is the person. So when it says those who believe in his name, it doesn't mean someone who 
conceptually says Jesus, the way I did before I was a Christian, yes, I believe Jesus was God, a concept. No, this means to those who trusted him, they believed in him, they believed on him, their confidence was in him. And it says they were born not of blood or bloods or flesh or man. It's not a natural birth. That Jesus, he comes into the world, the first world he created. He's going to create another. And for those who believe in him now, this rebirth takes place in the old creation so that they're ready for the new, as it were. They become part of the new creation before the new heavens and the earth are formed. They become children of that new creation. But it's God's doing. It's not the effort or the work of man. It's not physical DNA that produces children of God. You remember God has no grandchildren. If you're Christians, it doesn't mean that when your child's born, they're a Christian. They're not. He has no grandchildren. Rebirth is spiritual. If it's not spiritual, it didn't happen. And it's God's doing that brings about that rebirth. And it occurs as people simply receive Christ. This, I hope, makes it easier for you or for me. If you think about doing what John the Baptist did, which is being a witness, pointing to Christ, if you feel that it's up to you to convince that person to believe, you carry a heavy weight. If you think that you have to answer all their arguments so that they can believe, that's a heavy burden. In fact, those are burdens I would argue biblically you and I don't need to carry. All we have to do is be the witness. In fact, I love John's witness later. He just says to his followers, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You know what? That was the witness. And you know what? Some of his followers, that was enough. They went to Jesus. For you and I, the the weight, the responsibility isn't to make that person be born again. We don't do that. Later on, Jesus is going to confound Nicodemus when he says, you know what, the wind blows where it wills. Don't try and figure it out. You and I, we don't have to figure it out. Sometimes we'll get a concept in our head, I think they're ready to become a Christian. You know what, you and I have no clue by looking on the outward appearance or the life or anything else. We have no clue who is or who is not ready to become a Christian. You don't know. And that's why in the other Gospels, the picture is a farmer with seed. And this is an ignorant farmer. Why? Because he throws his seed on all kinds of soil. He makes no distinction. Rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil, he throws it everywhere. And that's that's what it's supposed to be for you and I. We don't know who's coming to Christ. You know, you might look at one person and think, boy, they're such a nice person. Surely they'll become a Christian. Why? Because they're a nice person. I'm sorry. Nice is not in God's index. We were sinners. Jesus died for sinners, for wretches, like you and me. So we don't look at the outward appearance. And our only responsibility is to do what John the Baptist did. It's bear witness to someone else. It's to point to Christ. Even if you do it poorly, that's okay. That's enough. Because in the end, it's God who's at work. It's a spiritual work. It's not what you and I can accomplish. 
We present the message in one way or another. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The news, the story, the message about Jesus Christ. Because it's the power of God to salvation. Some will hear. In fact, sometimes, you know, it's the people that you and I would think, no way. In fact, when you became a Christian, somebody was probably shaking their head, no way. <laughs> Last person I would have thought. But that's okay. What I'm getting at is, <clears throat> John the Baptist didn't know who would follow Christ, but he bore a witness. And that's all we're doing. Like John, we're not the light. We point to someone else. We bear witness to Jesus, the real light of the world. You know, the tragedy is he did come to the world he created and was rejected. He did come to his people and was rejected. But John says, but you know what? Some believed. Some received and they became children of God. Let me close with this illustration. You know, in ancient times, you had, <clears throat> you tended to have, out of city-states grew larger nations. City-states were the norm. You know, think of the Greek world or the Far Eastern world. City-states, that was kind of the norm. But <clears throat> over time, larger nations grew out of those. And what you had were vassal kings under high kings. So Herod, for instance, in the New Testament is called a king, but Rome rules King Herod. He was a vassal king. He was a treaty king. He ruled under Rome's authority in their name. You might have, in fact, you did have city-states that would rebel against their great king, their high king. In fact, Israel does this under Babylon. Israel's, the kings of Israel were vassal kings under Babylonian rule. They ruled under the aegis, under the authority of the king of Babylon. So that sometimes what would happen is, this city-state and its vassal king that rebels, you know what's going to happen, of course. The high king comes with his army, and he comes outside their walled city, and he reads a, a proclamation before the city. He calls them to change their mind and to come back under his royal rule. And typically, this is what would happen. Some people in the city... They thought, you know what, we've got pretty good walls, we've got lots of food and fresh water, we can hold out and we're going to win. We're going to play the, the cards we've got and we're staying here. Others would say, you know what, he's the king and he's got the right to rule. Or, that's quite an army. And these walls are looking a little smaller all the time. And whichever camp, whichever of those two points of view, hey, he's got the right to rule or he's got the power... And I recognize that. You know what they do? They leave the city. They go out those city gates, leave those city walls, and they join the king. And you know when they did? They bowed down to that king outside those walls, and they said, we recognize your right to rule. And guess what? When they did so, they escaped the judgment that would come upon that city. And that's the picture we've got here. King Jesus does come here as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. But the truth is, he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he's come to the city gates, and he's calling on people today to come out. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, talks about this. Come out. Come out from the dark world. Come out from the city, doomed to destruction. And those who believe, they're leaving the city. They're leaving the world and its darkness and they're coming out to that king at the gates, and they're saying, for whatever reason, 
We know who you are, and we know you've got the power. And we're bowing in submission to you. We're recognizing your authority and your right to rule, and we're siding with you. And it's a good thing. In Jesus' case, we then become his children, children of God. We escape judgment, the judgment that's coming. We leave, spiritually, the world of darkness, and we join Jesus in the world of life. Of life. Let's pray. Lord, I know that every benefit, every good thing we've ever enjoyed in our life has come straight from your hand. That, Lord, as James says, in you there's not even a hint of shadow or darkness that in your essence you are light, morally, spiritually. Lord, help us serve the the role, play the same role that John the Baptist did. He understood his purpose, as he'll say later. Jesus was the one he was here to bear testimony to. He was not the light. Lord, I know that when you save us, you could take us straight to heaven as your children, but you don't. And among other things, with our time on the earth, you're using us to be witnesses like John to your son Jesus, he who is in himself life, who is in himself light. And Lord, whether we do it poorly or whether we do it well, help us just to do it. And trust you to be spiritually at work so that others are seeing him, Jesus, and believing. Lord, we're thrilled that we belong to you, that we're your children. All our hopes, Lord, are in you. Thanks, Jesus, that you are the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.